been told that. I'm guessing maybe you have. Um, it doesn't matter too much. Uh, at RUF, we like to say we're a rest stop for tired Christians and a safe place for skeptics. And we say that because we think the gospel has something to say uh, not only to those who are skeptical of Christianity and those who have not yet believed, uh, but also to Christians. There is, there is an ongoing hope and a foundation that the Christian life is built on uh, that we think the gospel gives us, that the gospel is for us. Um, if you're unfamiliar with what RUF is, we're a college ministry uh, all over the country and even in some places around the world. And I'm a pastor, actually. Um, I'm here because churches in this part of Virginia care about you and want someone for you to walk through life with and uh, grow in the faith with. Uh, however, it's not just me that's here to do that. It's also you guys. You guys are here for each other as well. Um, so that's me. My name is Ben. I see a lot of new faces tonight, so I just want to give a quick introduction to myself. Uh, my wife, Kirsten, and I have been married almost 10 years. And, oh, don't. I said almost. We'll see how things go over the next couple of months. Just kidding. No, that's not a, that's not a funny thing to joke about. Uh, and we have three kids, Jude, Audrey, and Ruby. And Audrey is too much. If you've met her, you know what I mean. Uh, and Jude is great. And Ruby is too small to really know what's happening right now or have any personality. So uh, anyway... That's it. So, uh, two quick announcements. Somebody left this here last week. Does anybody know? Devin? Come on, walk your shame. Get up here. I've had it all week. Don't drink the water after I... Don't drink the water. Um, okay, so if this is your first time here this semester, we've been going through a series in Mark... Uh, the Gospel of Mark, called uh, Questions and Answers with Jesus. And we're doing that uh, in part because uh, we've got to have something to talk about from the Gospel, but really because questions are one of the big drivers, uh, one, of, one of the big factors in Mark that kind of moves the story along and moves the teaching along. And so we want to examine what the questions in the Gospel of Mark uh, say to us and how they answer our questions today, even though we're obviously living in a very different time than when the Gospel of Mark was written. So tonight we're going to be addressing a passage from Mark chapter 8. So we'll be reading verses 27 through 38. So I'm going to go ahead and uh, read those. Actually, sorry, I almost forgot the other announcement. Um, next week, I will actually not be here. And uh, Pastor Brian Rigg, my colleague over at uh, Mercy Presbyterian Church, will be preaching on Tuesday night. But I will be back after that. Uh, small groups will be different next week. And some of you have already communicated with that about. And we'll put out announcements uh, as, as they're necessary about those. Um, anyway, so Mark chapter 8, verses 27 through 38. Let's read there and then we'll pray. Uh, and in keeping with the spirit of questions and answers, we'll have some time for questions and answers after the talk tonight. So starting in verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, 
Who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. And he asked them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, You are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you uh, that we get to meet outside tonight, that we get to look out over uh, the mountains and gather together to hear your word. We pray that you would bless the reading of your word uh, in, in this talk that we do now in our fellowship, Lord, that you would uh, implant it in our hearts, that you would continue to grow our faith in the risen Lord, and that you would form us into his image more and more. And in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Uh, okay, so there are several different questions in the text tonight. And uh, one of those, of course, is Jesus' question. Who do you say that I am? Uh, whenever Jesus asks a question, it's important. And it's usually kind of cutting, right? And this is a, this is a really basic question. Who do you say that I am? Or at least it seems that way. Uh, but I want to talk about why this is so important and, and what it actually reveals about who he is. That's the first question that I think tonight's passage addresses. And the second one is this. Does God have a wonderful plan for my life? Uh, you, you maybe have heard that often uh, and, and in different ways, maybe phrased differently or with something else added on or whatever it is. But if it's true, it at least needs some qualifications. Okay, so that's the second question we're going to talk about. Uh, first, who is Jesus? And second, does God have a wonderful plan for my life? Uh, so this first question, who is Jesus? So Jesus asks the disciples who people say he is. And they all get it wrong. Everybody who's been tracking with Jesus, right? At least everybody the disciples are reporting on. Uh, everyone has been following Jesus' ministry, not exactly in the newspapers, but like by word of mouth and kind of tracking what's been going on in Judea and Galilee and all around the country. And when Jesus comes to ask, who do people say that I am? And isn't that an interesting question? Who do people say that I am? Uh, it's not as if Jesus is looking for affirmation here. Right, so what is going on? Well, when he asks this of his disciples, they say that, well, all the crowds, everybody who's been following us for the last several months or years or whatever, and, and everybody who's heard about your ministry, they're all saying things like you're John the Baptist 
or you're one of the prophets of old, or maybe you're Elijah. And if you notice, all of those are good things. Uh, those are all great people to be associated with. Uh, and even there's something miraculous about them, right? For Jesus to be one of those uh, people or one of those groups of people, he would have to have been raised from the dead, right? Like something supernatural would have to be going on here. And yet that's not enough, right? It's not enough to say that Jesus is one of those. Because all of those people, all of those groups listed, they're just people. They're all good, but they're all wrong, and they're just people. So Jesus is not only a man. He's more than that. And that's why he, he goes on. He asks his disciples this question, who do you say that I am? And that's kind of em- emphatic in the Greek, uh, to add that the pronoun, to say, who do you say that I am? So, they all say that I'm a prophet or John or Elijah or whatever else, but you've been around me for a while now. You know, right? Like you've gotten it by this point, haven't you? And then Peter chimes in and says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Peter and the apostles know that Jesus is greater than all those other options. Uh, In Matthew, Peter actually says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You're the Christ. Nailed it. Good job, Peter. But why didn't other people get this like Peter did? Uh, Why didn't other people see Jesus' real person, his real identity, like the disciples did? Well, maybe you remember, we we mentioned this uh, probably closer to the beginning of the semester, Uh, something that we call the secrecy motif, uh, which is kind of just like literary terminology for saying Jesus was not revealing who he was, right? Jesus was kind of hiding it. And uh, that was for a reason. And I think that'll make sense in just a minute. But the secrecy motif, right? It's It's a big like theme in the gospels where people will come to Jesus and be healed by him. And he'll say, you know, go your way. Your faith has made you whole. Don't tell anybody about me, right? There, there are a few places in the Gospels uh, where Jesus says, like, yeah, go spread the news, right? Even when the demons confess that he is the Son of God, we kind of get this idea that they're doing it because they know he doesn't want that to happen. And he says, shut up. Okay, he doesn't say shut up, but um, he says stop, right? So what is the reason It could kind of sound unfair that Jesus is hiding himself or dishonest. Uh, But of course, I hope you know, that's not uh, what he's doing. He's waiting for the right time to reveal himself. But up to this point, he has continued to keep his true self kind of hidden. And the reason comes into play here with Peter. See, Peter understands who Jesus is. He understands that he is the Christ. But he doesn't actually understand what that means. My throat's really dry, so I'm going to drink some water. It'll be an awkward pause. What's the difference between the hippo and the zippo? One's a little lighter. Good one, Jimmy. 
Thank you for that comedic relief. Um, okay, so Peter doesn't actually understand uh, what this means, right? That, that Jesus is the Christ. So I want to talk about what, what that is real quick, the Christ. Uh, so that's the Greek term that gets uh, translated from the Old Testament's Messiah, which essentially means the anointed one. So this is a big deal in the Old Testament, right? Uh, this is the one that God himself will anoint to save his people. This is somebody who has been prophesied about since the Garden of Eden, right? He's the one who's going to come. If you've been in our small groups, he's the one who's going to come and crush the head of the serpent. He's the offspring. He's the one. He's the Messiah, the Christ. And there's all this information about him, this prophetic information about him in the Old Testament. But there are also a lot of false expectations about him around this time in history. See, even though there are all these passages in the Old Testament that talk about how he'll not only set his people free from suffering, but from sin, and how he'll not only uh, conquer one day, but suffer, what has become the expectation of Jewish people around this time is that the Messiah is going to show up and deliver them from Rome, that he's going to make Israel great again. That only occurred to me as I was saying it. Um, yeah, let it sit for a second. Uh, so that's, that's the expectation, that the Christ is going to come onto the scene and make Israel awesome. He's going to free them from the Romans. He's going to expand the kingdom, and everything's going to be great. Okay, see, the thing is, Peter also bought into these false expectations. Peter's just confessed that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed one, the Messiah that they've been hoping would come to save them. But he is also bought into these false expectations. Uh, Jesus goes on to teach them, his disciples that is, what he came for. So in verse 31, Mark's gospel says, And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. But Peter pulls Jesus aside and starts to rebuke him, which for us looking back on it is almost comedic, right? That Peter is rebuking <laughs> um, the creator of the world, the Lord of life, God himself. And he, he comes to him and, and he pulls him aside and starts to rebuke him. Uh, a suffering Messiah is not part of Peter's plan. Peter, too, just like a lot of his countrymen, wants the Messiah to come and rescue them from Rome. He doesn't have a whole lot of room in his theology or his thinking or his hope for a Messiah who's going to come and die. Peter wants Jesus to make things right now. He wants what he had been expecting from the Messiah. He understood that Jesus is the Messiah, but he doesn't understand what the Messiah has come to do. Uh, Peter's desire for Jesus to be the king he expected him to be is so far off base that when Peter pulls him aside and starts to rebuke him for saying he's going to die and that he must die, 
Jesus calls him Satan. <laughs> uh, he, he says, you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. See, Peter wants to have glory now. But that misses the reason that Jesus came. It misses it entirely. Peter can't have glory without Jesus suffering. And he's missed that point. He's so caught up in the present world, in the present life, in the hope to be freed from his current circumstances, that he has missed what Jesus has actually come for, to suffer for his sins. See, Peter can't have glory until Jesus suffers or without Jesus suffering, and neither can we. So the question for us then is, do we really know who Jesus is? We confess him as Christ, but do we know what that means? Do we understand that? Do we believe that he is the king who came to die? Or do we, like Peter, want him to be the king who came to take away our earthly problems? Give us enough money, an easy life, some social capital, an eased conscience, good feelings, right? We could just keep going with that. Is that what we want Jesus to be or do we want him to be the king that he came to be? One of the problems with wanting Jesus to be what we want him to be is that it's way too small and it's actually not what we need. It might be what we want, but it's not what we need. Our greatest need is not to be happy now. Our greatest need is not a happy present. It's a happy future. We've talked a lot about sin this semester. We needed Jesus to deal with our sin so that we could have eternity with him. There's a real hope in this, right? Uh, It doesn't sound great off the bat that Jesus didn't come to just make everything awesome for me in this life. But the other side of that is that he did come to take away the thing that keeps us, could keep us, from eternity with God, from an eternally happy future. Okay, we'll come back to that in a little bit though. Uh, Jesus is the Christ who came to suffer. So what should we expect then for our own lives? And that brings us to the other question that we had tonight. Does God have a wonderful plan for my life? Um, I want to use... Well, no, we'll come back to that. Sorry, I got ahead of myself there. Um, I want us to just consider what this passage says. I mean, just like face value. We'll talk about it more. We'll get a little bit more in depth, but just face value. Jesus is not telling his disciples, it's going to be awesome, y'all. Like what you signed up for is peachy. And he's not even telling them this, that like, no, 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 it's cool. Uh, You're going to suffer for like, 
10 minutes. Um, but don't worry, God is going to use that in you to make your life after that awesome. He doesn't tell them that he's going to use them uh, and that this is all just part of a plan for this life. He, he just says, you've got to pick up your cross to follow me. You can imagine how shocking this would be to Peter and the disciples who have wanted an earthly kingdom, who have wanted Israel to expand and be freed and be made new and put back under its own rule. Maybe if we remember the original context for who Mark was writing this gospel to, we talked about this, we've talked about every couple weeks maybe, Remember that Mark is likely writing this gospel to persecuted Christians at the beginning of, of Roman persecution of Christians in the first century AD. And they're reading this gospel out loud together in their houses and churches and hearing, maybe as they hide, our king was killed. That's what he came to do. You pick up your cross and follow me. Don't be ashamed of me, though there is great cost to this. My hope is that this is actually good news. Uh, we, we have a sort of proximate good news Small G, small N, we'll get to capital G, capital N, good news in a minute. But I hope that this is actually good news for you guys because this actually matches up with reality. The reality of the Christian life is not that we uh, go through suffering for a short time so that things will just be great for us afterward. The reality of the Christian life is not that we follow Jesus to make our lives fun or cool or comfortable. Actually, if you're skeptical of Christianity here tonight, and that has something to do with Christians talking about how great life will be and never talking about their problems and never acknowledging anything, I hope this is good news to you because that's never been what Christianity has actually been about. Jesus isn't exactly telling his disciples to seek out suffering And this isn't about the providential suffering that God sends our way. This is is suffering for the gospel's sake. Just being a Christian doesn't mean that all of your suffering is for the sake of the gospel or in relation to it, right? We all just live under the curse that was put on mankind because of Adam and Eve's fall. But Jesus here is talking about actually suffering for his sake. And for the sake of the gospel. And what he means is, if you follow him and you hold to what he has taught, if you trust in him as your savior, there will be conflict. And holding on to Jesus will mean then that you suffer through the conflict. I want to be clear about what bearing a cross is For the original audience, it likely was actually being persecuted. 
for brothers and sisters of ours, our people all around the world, regardless of nation or race, our people are suffering all around the world for the sake of their Savior. That has been the norm of Christian history. For us, that might look different, though. It may look like a life that's lived in accordance with the gospel, a life that's lived in keeping with what we actually believe about this free grace that's been given to us. For us, it likely means that living in keeping with that means we're dying to ourselves. My hope isn't in now. My hope is in the future. My hope is what Jesus is bringing one day. My hope is in a happy eternity. And that means that whatever commands Jesus gives me now, I'm able to act on because I actually believe that that's coming. And so bearing our cross for many of us, especially in this context, looks a lot more like saying no to things that would actually be really fun, really pleasing. It means saying no to a lot of our desires. It means biting our tongue when our roommates yell at us. I hope your roommates aren't yelling at you. Right? It means sometimes forgiving, sometimes letting things slide, even when that's the most painful possible scenario. Bearing our cross looks like simple obedience to Jesus no matter what comes from it because of our belief in him. Um, this, this saying of Jesus, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Uh, sometimes I, I think that confuses us, right? We begin to think like, well, does this mean that like I have to believe in Jesus and then like go and find a way to suffer for him? Or do I have to like make some sort of bold public proclamation? Do I need to go to, you know, like a persecuted country and like yell out that I believe in Jesus in a, on a city street corner? Like, I, I don't know what that gets at. Uh, the, un, unfortunately, that sometimes makes us think that like we have to earn something from God. I want to talk about why that's not the case. Why this is not a work that we do to perform for God, to earn anything from him. When he says this, to lose your life for my sake in the Gospels, um, we need to remember that the Gospel is a story of loss. The Gospel is a story of Jesus dying. Not the story of us dying or doing something to be made right with God. It's the story of us already having been made right with God because of what Jesus did on the cross a long time ago. It's an objective reality outside of us. It's something to hope in, believe into. So if we have the right understanding of what the gospel is, that can help us clear this up. 
In the gospel, we do not gain the world, but we do gain our soul, which is priceless. And this isn't through earning something. Bearing our cross doesn't get us something with God. It doesn't merit anything with God. We gain our soul through hoping in a hopeless message. Right? Paul in 1 Corinthians says that this was foolishness. This doesn't seem, this message that God would come to die for our sins, it doesn't seem to make any sense. And yet to follow him means to so believe that message, to so hope in it and expect the reality that is to come because of it, that we then act like our Savior. This suffering comes from placing hope in a message that gives no earthly reward. But the heavenly reward is great. So that's where faith and works connect in this passage. And that faith hopes so much in this reality of Jesus that it works itself out through hope in this future promise. And it's a real enough hope in the future to deny the now. Um, This is not a call to get everything you can in life, obviously, right? He says to pick up your cross and follow him. It's not a call to get power for Christians. It's not a call to be a champion. It's a call to pick up your cross and follow Jesus, to lay down what's important to you for the sake of the gospel. It doesn't mean every one of you has to be a a minister or a missionary. It does mean you can live your life so hoping in the future, so believing that message that Jesus has given us that you can deny the now. So does God have a wonderful plan for your life? I'll let you answer that. One more thing that's important about us picking up our cross and following Jesus and why this actually brings us back to the central message itself. Why this actually brings us away from any idea that we can earn something from God or merit something from him by being like Jesus. And it's simply this, that we cannot begin to be like Jesus until we have believed in him. We often talk about justification here at RUF. I'm going to talk about it again tonight. Justification in theological terms is being made right with God on the basis of Christ's work alone. It's a really loud plane. Justification is being made right with God on Christ's work alone, on the basis of Christ's work alone, and nothing else, nothing to do with you. And sanctification is being made more and more like your Savior, 
but they only go in that one direction. It is always justification, then sanctification. So here with these people Jesus is speaking to, if they have hoped in Jesus, if they have believed into Jesus, they will begin to be made like him. They will begin to take up their cross and follow in the footsteps of their Lord. And actually one of the amazing things about following in the footsteps of our Lord is that when we get lowly like he did, when we pick up our cross, we actually find him there. Far from trusting in, our, in ourselves, far from thinking we can earn anything from God or merit anything from him, we actually find there what Jesus has done for us, which is to give himself up. And so God, the Son of Man, the Son of God, the Christ, who came to die for you, is found as you begin to die as well. As you begin to deny yourself and take up your cross, you find the true meaning of his cross. Uh, Okay, so let's... Let's pray, and then we'll take uh, five to seven minutes for questions.